Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 000013 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I am your host through to eight this evening. Of course, I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners from which I am broadcasting this evening to you, the people of the Kulin Nation, the Wurundjeri, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. If you're tuning in for the first time, the mission is about hearing and learning about the issues that don't usually get much coverage in the media or don't get much in-depth coverage, issues that affect people at the wrong end of the social justice arc in this country. <clears throat> I, myself, as a Yorta Yorta man, use the hour we have together to mainly explore issues impacting First Nations people, and so is the case tonight. Institutional or systemic racism is a notion that some of you might have heard of, um, but what does it really mean? What impact does it have on people in, in real life? Well, on tonight's show, we explore how systems or institutions themselves can ultimately have a high cost uh, on Aboriginal people. They pay a high price at the hands of some of these systems and some of these institutions, and in worst case scenarios, can ultimately cost people their lives. So I guess one definition of institutional racism goes as such. Institutional racism refers to the ways in which racist beliefs or values have been built into the operations of social institutions in such a way as to discriminate against, control and oppress various minorities groups. It's been claimed that institutional racism is embedded in Australian institutions and often institutional racism is covert or even unrecognised by the agents involved in it. So with that in mind, I'll be speaking with George Newhouse and Talia Bolger via a coronial inquest that wrapped up yesterday in New South Wales regarding the death of a 27-year-old Wiradjuri woman, Naomi Williams, who was six months pregnant at the time. We'll uh, discuss with both of them uh, what the uh, what the coroner found in a little bit more detail. And uh, later on in the hour, I'll be speaking with uh, Rodney Dillon, a Palawa elder, an Indigenous rights campaigner for Amnesty International. Read some statistics regarding the number of Aboriginal kids locked up in watch houses in Queensland. Some very alarming stats there show uh, an enormous overrepresentation of Aboriginal kids in those lockups. So it's another full show. It's another somewhat heavy show. So pour whatever it is you're drinking and settle in. The best way to connect with me is via Twitter. My handle is Mr DT James. So pour yourself something or other and stick around. This is the mission. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now, yesterday, a New South Wales coroner made several recommendations to address Indigenous health comes after an inquest findings into the death of a Wiradjuri woman and her unborn child. The name of that Wiradjuri woman 
is Naomi Williams, and she was 27 years of age at the time of her death. Naomi was six months pregnant when she arrived at Tumut District Hospital in the early hours of January 1st, 2016, in severe pain. Hospital staff gave her two paracetamols and an ice block before sending her home. 15 hours later, she died um, as a result of meningococcal and septicemia, according to the autopsy report. On the line to discuss the uh, coronial findings and to give us an overview of Naomi Williams' cases, George Newhouse and Talia Bulger. George is an Australian human rights lawyer and a former local councillor. He's the principal solicitor of the National Justice Project, a human rights and social justice legal service, and currently is adjunct professor of law at Macquarie University. And also on the line is uh, Talia who was Naomi's best friend. She's a fellow Wiradjuri woman and she's been following the inquest very closely. George and Talia, welcome to Triple R. Good evening. Thank you much. No worries. Thank you. It's okay. So we've got both um, George and Talia on Skype at the moment, so um, bear with us, but I think the line's pretty good. Um, probably start off with you first, uh, George. Could you give us an overview of what actually happened to Naomi and um, your role in the coronial proceedings? Well, um, as you said, Naomi was a 27-year-old Wiradjuri woman. Um, she presented during her pregnancy to the Tumut Hospital around 18 times in the months before she uh, passed away. And she got substandard care from the hospital and the coroner agreed that um, she, was, she had very low expectations about the care that she'd received from the hospital because uh, each time she attended, she was either uh, stereotyped as some kind of drug user or, you know, alcoholic and sent to drug and alcohol, Um, but on no occasion did she ever get um, escalated and sent to um, a medical specialist, which the coroner says should have happened. So unfortunately, by the time... She presented on New Year's Day in 2016. She was so disappointed with the uh, hospital. She wasn't prepared to fight for them to take her seriously when she was uh, suffering from a meningococcal virus. They sent her home with two Panadol and uh, she went home and died 12 hours later. Talia, you were um, Naomi's best friend. Um, what, what type of person was Naomi? She was a very, very happy person, very family-oriented, very driven. Mm-hmm. She was always when come to work or to culture, and yeah, always around family, always around friends. And once she got sick, the whole like a whole life changed, and unfortunately, she wasn't taken serious. And that's something that um, a lot of Aboriginal people face when presenting to you know, government systems, and um, there's, you know, no more starker case than, than with uh, Tumut Hospital. Um, Jeff, um, oh, sorry, George, out of the um, nine recommendations, seven provided um, suggestions that um, the local health district needed to improve and review the way it cared for um, Aboriginal patients, and this included looking at levels of implicit envir- um, bias, improving Indigenous representation among staff, and consulting with the local Indigenous community. Um, 
do you have much confidence that that will actually happen? Look, you have to hope that it will happen. The coroner's made a number of very serious recommendations. Uh, a young, a beautiful young woman, uh, the pride of her community has passed away. And if they're not prepared um, to take these um, recommendations seriously, then I, I don't think there's hope for us all. I, I'm very, you know, I was at the community as recently as yesterday. Um, the community believe that the hospital are making an effort. Mm -hmm. um, it's not good enough yet. They're not there yet. But there does seem to be a bit of a shift in attitudes. Now, that needs to continue uh, to keep people safe and well and not have another death on their hands. So um, I am hopeful. Um, you might want to ask Talia what she thinks from the community perspective, but I think it's very important that the hospital follow through. Yeah, Talia, there's been reports that um, there has been... Um, you know, a history of bad experiences with, with the hospital. Um, are you able to confirm from, from a community's perspective, you know, you know, any sort of stories you've heard about the way Aboriginal people are treated when they present? There, there is a, like, a local um, fear, or not fear, but mistrust of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Our community members will drive themselves half an hour over to Gundagai Hospital. They'll drive themselves an hour to Wagga just to avoid going to that Tumut Hospital. There are other family members in town that have either been not looked after up there, have passed away up there, and they do believe there was a missed duty of care in those cases as well. We're hoping now that these findings that have been put in place, uh, we're all going to work together, trying to push and keep those findings and those recommendations in place at Human Hospital, both from community and I hope from ho from the hospital as well. Anita Heiss, who um, has been heavily involved in this and, and was um, a cousin of um, uh, Naomi's, um, said yesterday on the steps of, of uh, the court that uh, the whole goal of this process was to make sure that there is structural change and that racism that is obvious within the health system, particularly here in this region, is addressed. Um, do you think, and I'll throw this one to um, either one of you, do you think that the whole notion of um, bias and institutional racism is well understood within um, not only health settings in Australia but, but within institutions across Australia? I think we're on our way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's bad experiences like this, these tragic things that happen that are the learning curve, but I'm yeah, hoping... Yeah, and... Sorry. No, you're fine, George. You, you fi <laughs> no, you finished, Elias. I apologise. No, I did finish. That's OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we're all being polite to each other. But look, <laughs> I, I think as a, a non-Indigenous person that on the whole, um, uh, we don't have an understanding of how it feels to be discriminated against. And the non-Indigenous community does get defensive when the word racism is rolled out. I think the coroner was very careful to use the word implicit bias mm -hmm. in her findings, but we all know what that means. It's a prejudice or, or a, you know, a, a discrimination by, by race. Um, but I am hopeful, like 
Talia that this will lead to change. It is an educational process. People are going to learn from this experience so that Naomi's life was not taken in vain. That, you know, uh, we can move forward and, and ensure that everyone in this country receives the same standard of care. That's all people want, the same standard of care, not something, you know, subordinate. Yeah, I think um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like trying to explain intergenerational trauma too. It's a very complex issue to actually try and educate people on. But, you know, I think Aboriginal people, you know, everywhere has have a, have a fairly firm understanding of what institutional racism is, um, what um, uh, intergenerational trauma is. Um, what steps can we take as um, a nation and as, you know, leaders within our own states and territories to, to actually get these quite complex notions sort of ingrained and understood within systems and institutions. I'll probably give that one to you, George, for a starter. All right. Uh, look, I'm a great believer in um, the NAIDOT Week theme, uh, a Voice Treaty Truth. Telling truth is very important. This, is, this, this coronial inquest was part of truth-telling, and I do believe that um, the family feel and uh, that the truth was told in this case and that the hospital was called out for what happened. That doesn't happen very often in Tumut. <laughs> and I think that was of some relief to the family. But if we're going to move forward and stop this kind of um, death or harm to an individual from happening in the future, voice is really important. Listening to Aboriginal people, listening to community, they have a lot of knowledge. They know what's wrong with that hospital. It's just that no one's listening. And until, um, as a nation, at all levels, right down to hospitals and local health districts, um, um, non-Indigenous Australians are prepared to listen and give local Aboriginal communities and individuals a voice. Um, we won't really have, eliminate this scourge of racism. Yeah, Talia, were you, were you happy with the way the inquest was held and, and do you feel that um, uh, Naomi's family and the community were, were actually heard? It, it was a very long process. We started this three years ago and I think that was hard for family because it was a drawn-out thing. But we were surrounded by support, by strength, by love from family and from George and the team. The, the court themselves were very respectful of us and yesterday I think was a bit a um, bit of a hard sad day for us we we're all a bit tired at the end of the day but waking up this morning I know myself I sat back and thought about the findings and everything that was put in the recommendations that have been put out and I know that they're going to make a huge impact here mm -hmm. in Tumut and hopefully a bit, bit further out countrywide I hope but um the community's strong now. They've got that bit of um, that bit of strength in behind them, and we're going to keep these keep the hospital here. We're going to keep them on their toes. Um, I'm myself and one of my aunties, Naomi's auntie, Auntie Sony Piper, we're, and Stan Russell here. We're locally in the LHAC, the hospital board now. So they've got voices there. They've got our faces there, and we're going to make sure that these recommendations 
are put in place there. That's fantastic. I mean, um, there's no underestimating or you know, comprehending the amount of trauma that um, the, the family's gone through and the, and the community's gone through. But you are to death, the, the, the community and the family are to be absolutely commended through going through that trauma because hopefully something good will come out of this and, and add to, you know, particularly New South Wales systems, understanding of some of the issues confronting Aboriginal people. So we, we thank you for that. Um, George, is, um, you're heavily involved, well, you are very heavily involved in um, human rights law. Um, where is Australia sitting um, at the moment in terms of the international community with the way it treats its First Nations people? Um, sadly, I think we're very low in the uh, international order. We're one of the few nations in the world that doesn't have a Bill of Rights. So human right, the human rights we get in this country come from our politicians and uh, depends on their whims. And that's because when we uh, developed our constitution, um, issues of race were very, very much live and in the minds of the framers of the constitution. And that's why um, people are pushing for the race power, the racist power in our constitution to be amended and deleted. So um, I think we've got a long way to go and I think a number of other countries around the world are looking at us, not just at the way that we treat First Nations peoples, but also the way we treat refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite inhumane. Yep. And uh, sadly, we're a very rich country, but we aren't at the top of the list of human rights. Well, we're richer now for um, the strength and uh, compassion of Naomi's family and your work, George, and your strength, Talia. So I'd like to thank you very much both for uh, coming on the show tonight. It's very much appreciated. Very much. A pleasure. Triple R. Welcome back. You are indeed listening to Triple R. This is The Mission. My name is Daniel James. We'll be speaking to another gentleman called Robert Dillon from Amnesty International Australia shortly. Um, but in um, the heaviness of what we just covered, there's some uh, bright news. And uh, word has just reached me that uh, the Miles Franklin Award for 2019 has been awarded to Melissa Lukashenko for her book, Too Much Lip. Long overdue, she's been a writer of some high class for such a long time. She is a Bundjalung woman from um, up Brisbane Way. And um, I don't know whether you've read that uh, book too much, but you probably want to go and get it as soon as possible because I don't think you're going to be able to get it on shelves for much longer unless unless her publisher is up to the standard and uh, is uh, making sure that uh, new copies are being printed as we speak. So congratulations to her. She's a lovely person. She's a gentle soul. And uh, congratulations to her. Now, um, last week on Twitter, uh, an infographic caught my eye. It was a graphic uh, quoting Queensland police statistics which um, covered the dates from uh, January to the 13th of December 2018. And the infographic simply asked the question, how overrepresented were Indigenous kids in Queensland watch houses in 2018? The answer, 
Well, of all the kids locked up in watch houses, 74% of them were Indigenous. This is from a population that makes up 5% of the overall kids' population in Queensland. The research that uh, puts this infographic together was done by Amnesty International Australia as part of their Communities Everything campaign that aims to reduce inequality in the justice system for Indigenous people. On the line to discuss this with us is uh, Rodney Dillon. Rodney is a Palawa elder and Indigenous rights campaigner for Amnesty International Australia. Rodney, good evening and welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Good evening to you. First of all, um, we should probably get to the bare bones of this. What are watch houses? Watch houses are a place where we put people in that's done murders and bank robberies and done things like that and assaults and stuff like that. that that's what watch houses are for, to hold adults. Yeah, they're there to, they're to hold adults. And Amnesty International Australia's research has shown that um, in some instances... Indigenous kids as young as 10 have been held in the same facilities. Yeah, that's right. It's a, um, it's a pretty shocking place for kids to be, isn't it? 10-year-old kids can be locked up in an adult lock-up. Yeah, it's absolutely um, horrendous. Um, Amnesty International Australia is part of a, a coalition of organisations that's asking governments to invest in um, alternative community-based models that actually help kids. And uh, you're running a campaign called Hashtag Raise the Age so that um, kids can't be locked up until at least the age of 14-year-old, 14-year-old kids. Um, What's some of the thinking behind that campaign exactly? Well, 14 is an international standard. That's a standard that's been set um, by the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. So that's an international standard that we think Australia should should have as a as a base standard. 14 should be the minimum. We know that locking 10-year-old kids up is not... It's not even... Shouldn't even be in our thoughts that we do that. And we know the long-term effects on, on 10-year-old kids. And kids up to... You know, kids up to 14, we know the long-term effects that this does to them as well. And also, then you... It's not only locking them up, but then you've got solitary confinement or isolation units or whatever you like to call them but certainly locking them up in adult prisons as well is even you know that's another step why why is that happening in queensland in particular why isn't there an investment in in proper youth detention facilities look i think queensland has been very slow and and not well organized over the years and they're gradually they're they've filled up their detention centres. They haven't looked at better diversion programs. They haven't looked at better ways of keeping kids out of the prison. We know that when you've got Indigenous-led solutions, um, Aboriginal people running programs in their local areas, that we know that these kids are less likely to re-offend. So we know there's things out there, there's justice reinvestment. We know these things work, but we don't. We tend not to... They've been a bit lazy and not... They've been, you know, they've been a lot lazy and they've not wanted to go down that line, they would rather lock the kids up in an adult detention, in an adult prison. And, of course, you know, it's an issue that it's not, um, you know, only related to Queensland. The overrepresentation occurs in, you know, pretty much every state and territory. I mean, here in Victoria, kids are jailed at 13 times the rate as uh, non-Indigenous uh, kids. Um, in the Northern Territory, every child in detention is Indigenous. 
Um, it has been for a good while. It has been for a good while. We had the uh, Royal Commission into the treatment of uh, children in detention in the Northern Territory. It seems to me, uh, Robert, that... Um, uh, no, sorry, Rodney, nothing has come of that. It seems like that it falls on deaf ears a lot, doesn't it? And we haven't got time to look after kids. And we know that our kids, when we put money into our kids, that's the best investment this country can have. And we know that, you know, having systems in place that look after our kids. Indigenous communities already have the answers to look after our families. You know, we don't need to be putting them into this system. We need to build better services around the families to support the families to stop these kids going into this place in the first place. The long-term effects on the kids and their families is horrendous. One of the one of the themes uh, throughout uh, this evening's show is um, the idea of systemic or institutional racism. Um, what part does systemic and or institutional racism play in these, uh, you know, appalling incarceration rates? I think we just can say that Indigenous kids are 25 times more likely to be locked up than non-Indigenous kids. I think those sort of statistics speak for themselves. I don't think you have to even go any further than that, do you, to understand what the problem is. We've had, you know, findings that Indigenous kids in Queensland, um, 2050, were held in the watch houses. Um, that's a, that's a lot of kids. Yeah. There's a, it's just a lot of our families. And then there was, uh, in those watch houses, there's 1,100 non-Aboriginal kids. Uh, uh, and we're, like you said, we're a small percentage of the population and we was double of that one up there. So they're, they're some of the indicators that um, that speak for themselves and, and governments have got to have a good look at themselves. I guess one of the one of the frustrating things in this space too is that to to force change we have to speak to you know eight different governments or you know whatever whatever it, whatever the number is so there's no central body that we can actually go to to advocate to to address some of these you know dis- disadvantages that uh, you know indigenous people people face what what role is amnesty international australia playing on that we're front we're trying to encourage the attorney generals at their state meetings that they have to raise the age and you know they've got an inquiry into that right at this moment uh, that's going to take and um, you know a while longer to do but we're encouraging those um, attorney generals to come out and make a statement to raise the age to 14 so because they know the consequences on these families we know when a kid under that age where that kid's going to end up when they're 20 if they're in there when they're in between they're 10 and 14 you know what's going to happen to that kid so we want to get systems in place that gives these kids a career and a future and not in the prison system we want them you know to be going to schools not to prisons and like you said a lot of these answers to these very complex issues actually lie in the majority of cases within the communities themselves. Um, can you think of any, you know, projects or, or programs that are in place that um, have shown some results? Yeah, look, there's the one in uh, Burke. You've got Justice Reinvestment in Burke. They've found that's that saved millions of dollars by having that there. Um, putting the money up front and helping the families, supporting the families so that they build stronger families, not bigger 
Partners. We've got Red Dust Healing, Randall Ross at Townsville. We've got Wayne Parker doing his program in Townsville. We've got Angela Salmon in Mount Isa. We've got the program at Fitzroy Crossing. Um, there's heaps of programs around this state. There's some. There's a couple that they've had Aboriginal run ones out of Darwin, and they've, you know, they defunded those programs. They would rather pay, you know, hundreds of thousands to keep the kids in the prison system than put them into these services that can look after the kids, you know, that are Indigenous led, and it, it helps them understand their culture, their family, where they come from, all these things, and it helps build stronger families. A lot of these uh, prison systems are, are, are privatised. Do you think that if we really look at it closely and delve below the surface even further, that state governments um, and territory and governments actually see Aboriginal people as a way to, to feed some of these systems that they have multi-billion dollar contracts with? Um, I certainly think that um, a prison system is an industry. Yeah. And the moment you build a prison, you, once you've built the prison, you then you work out a way of filling it up to justify building it. Yeah. I think that's the very problem we've got with this system. And we've seen in other countries in the world where they're actually closing prisons. They've actually got um, solutions to, to stopping the kids from going into these places in the first place. But we as a country haven't been able to bring ourselves to stop locking up these kids at this rate. Like, you know, it's a pretty alarming rate, isn't it? Indigenous kids are 25 times more likely to be locked up than a non-Indigenous kid. So there's a story in that, isn't there? How do we get it down to even being equal? We've got to cut it down by 24 times. It's um, it's a story that needs to be told. Um, it is 16 to 8 here in Triple R. I'm speaking with Rodney Dillon from um, Amity International Australia. Um, what, are, what are some of the other um, uh, programs and issues that um, you guys are, are working on at the moment? The, I think that building stronger families, we're concerned about where the kids are coming from to go in this, into the prison system. A lot of these kids are coming from out-of-home care. And yep. we're concerned about what's happening there. Um, we've been we're keeping an eye on that, and I think that'll be an area that we'll be working on in the future. We're trying to stop mandatory sentencing like they've got in Western Australia. We know that's directed straight at Aboriginal people. Um, and people you know, being people being got, locked up for for unpaid fines and that type of thing, um, and, and fare evasion on trains and stuff like that. Kids that haven't got money, you know, poverty shouldn't be a crime. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, can't really put it more any any more succinctly than that. Well, um, thank you for your time, Ron. It's um a very frustrating issue, but um, it's important that we discuss these things. And organisations like Amnesty International Australia continue to advocate with um the Aboriginal community to to try and get some change. So, thank you for your work and thank you for your time. Thank you, and we just hope that the governments can, you know, see the passion in and can see the results in Indigenous-led solutions in the future and also raising the age to 14, getting governments to stand up and, and have a bit of a go at trying to make a change in this country because they've just had blinkers on up to now and I think the blinkers need to be taken off. It's an issue that affects every state and territory. We elect these people. Um, we like to be able to think that we can hold them to account. But we need the uh, the messaging and the resources that uh, organisations like 
Amnesty International Australia and uh, organisations like uh, JIRA here in Victoria um, provide. So once again, Rodney, thank you very much for your time and for your work. Thank you. And don't forget to get everyone to talk on raising the age to 14. Raise the age. That's the hashtag. Look it yep. up on social media and use it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>